Good morning, my name is Chuck, and I'm a grateful member of Al-Anon. I'm going to mess you up again there, Stanley. I don't want to get those knocked to the floor. I've got some thank yous here, and first I've got to tell you it's 10 after 11. I've got to write that down because I know some guy named Mock supposed to talk about 2 o'clock or so, and I want to be done by then. He gets angry if he doesn't get up here on time, so... Um, God, I can't see what I've got my thank yous written down here. I, my fear is someday I'm going to pull one of these out of my pocket and it's going to be from Cleveland or something like that. <laughs> I, want to, I want to thank the committee for inviting me here to, uh, to Marietta, which isn't really Marietta. <laughs> That's confusing to me. Um, so, Stanley, you're not the only one confused. And Susan for uh, talking to me on the phone, and Stanley and, and uh, Russ for picking me up at the airport. Um, and for all you people that I know, this is just great to be able to come here and, and know so many people and, and even ha have had dinner with some of you folks in the past and to be able to come and, and just share. And what, what strikes me is, is, I, is I come to these functions, is just every, every, every example of humanity is sitting out here today. And Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon, we cover the whole breadth and, and width of, of, of the spectrum of people. And I, I think that's just great that we can sit... And, and talk and share with a commonality where otherwise in other situations we wouldn't do that. Uh, if, if I was sitting with a bunch of truck drivers, we'd talk about truck driving. If I was sitting with a bunch of warehouse workers, that's what we talk about. Bankers, I wouldn't be there. and <laughs> Not as a willing participant, anyway. Um, I, I come from the wrong side of the tracks. My wife and I are both born and raised in the poor part of town, and, and that's the way we we're brought up and pretty much that's the way we live. I'm a retired Teamster. I just started my Social Security uh, uh, last month. I'll be 63 years old this year. Uh, I work uh, in special ed in the high school now because I love doing it. It's just a great thing to be working with special ed kids. And next weekend Sandy and I are going to uh, go to our Special Olympics track and field meet in southern part of Wisconsin. So we'll be with our kids down there and having fun. Um, you know, you sit in a meeting with Alcoholics Anonymous, and I, I haven't been to many closed meetings. Uh, I've brought Sandy to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, and you know what the alcoholics have done when I've brought her to these meetings, because uh, she, sometimes she's not able to drive. Um, you open the meetings up. Come on in, Chuck. Sit with us and share. And we have a meeting, and, and I sit with the alcoholics and listen to what they have to say. And, of course, uh, I go to several Alcoholics meetings a week. I go to at least three. And, and it's really cool there. And we sit and we listen to what's being shared by others. And we, and we, just, um, we just know what's going on. And there's, there's not a lot of dissent and we accept people. And I was sitting in the Minneapolis airport waiting for my flight here. I flew from Duluth to Minneapolis. And I'm waiting for my flight. And, and I, I, I have a book. I, I love to read about the British Navy in the, the late uh, 17th and early 18th century. I, I read novels about that. And I can just read them over and over again. And I, I was someplace in the English Channel, uh, the wind was blowing and the rain was coming down, and I was sitting in my chair all by myself reading this book, and the lady sat down next to me and started talking. Now, she wasn't talking to me, or the person next to her, I, I don't think, but she was complaining about the size of her handbag, which, which you could have put a, probably a German shepherd in there. <laughs> and say, saying how she couldn't find whatever it was she was looking for. And, and, of course, it caught my attention because I thought maybe she was talking to me, and so I just kind of glanced over at her. And she 
pulled out her cell phone and she made a call and she was telling somebody that she was in the airport in Minneapolis. Well, then she made another call. John? John, is this you, John? John, I have to tell you, your father's having a colonoscopy on my birthday. And I'm thinking, Jesus. No, it's not. It's not anything normal, John. He's bleeding. He's bleeding in a stool. I'm thinking, oh, I've got to get out of here. And, and so I stood up and I moved off because I didn't want to hear about And then she said, you'll have to have his wife talk to you about it. I thought you should know. And then, and then I left. I didn't hear any more of that conversation. I was free to get up and leave. So I thought, well, that, that was interesting. I hope everything comes out all right for him. <laughs> I, I know I'm 63. I've been there. So uh, a couple of times. Well, then I'm waiting for the flight, and they start loading first class, and they start loading exit rolls, which now you have to pay for, you know, and all that kind of crap. And so they start loading these rolls, and all of a sudden they, everybody starts coming off the airplane. Uh, there'll be a slight delay, and we have to shampoo the carpet. Well, that really opens up your mind, doesn't it? <laughs> shampoo the carpet on an airplane, which is like a hollowed-out cigar without any fresh air. And then we waited for a while, and the lady said it'll be about 10 minutes. And then she got back on, and she said it'll be about 20 minutes. And then she got back on and said there was a service dog on the airplane who became ill. And I'm thinking, here we go again. God, I'm listening to some guy's colon. I got a dog with diarrhea, and it's just like I haven't even left yet. She said, we can't get the odor out of the plane. And then she said, if you have any objects that go under the seat, check to see if the floor is wet. <laughs> Suddenly, I wish that Susan hadn't even called me. I was thinking, I don't, I don't even want to go. And after about a half an hour, they did the smart thing that somebody must have thought of, perhaps the person that was cleaning the airplane. They, they got a different airplane, and that's what we came down here on after an hour. But it's just an interesting thing how just the world is just strange, you know. And, and sometimes you can get up and walk away from it, and sometimes in the case of loudspeakers and this, this, this woman screaming at the top of her lungs about the dog getting sick, you just can't get away from it and you have to deal with it. Um, Whatever that has to do with Elon, I have no idea. I just thought I'd share with you the experiences of a person that talks at conferences. This is what we go through. Um, I was born on the wrong side of town. But I grew up on the wrong side of the tracks, and, and uh, I grew up in a neighborhood of family bars, of whorehouses, and of, uh, of just gambling uh, places, uh, blind pigs, they used to call them. Uh, Superior, Wisconsin is a town of about 28,000 people. Uh, at the time I was growing up anyway. I grew up, right, uh, was born during the war, the Second World War, and, and grew up in the North End in those shipyards and coal and grain and a lot of transport, uh, uh, ships coming in and, and trucks and things. So but we grew up in that end of the town. Sandy grew up six blocks away from me. We didn't know one another. I grew up with her sister, but I did not know Sandy. There was just enough age difference in us where we didn't know. Uh, my mom and dad drank. Were they alcoholic? I have no idea, and it doesn't really matter anymore. I, I'm a big guy. I'm responsible for my own recovery. And uh, my mom and dad drank in family bars. There was a lot of family bars in town. There was uh, 28,000 people. There was 89 bars. So it was just like wherever you went, there was a tavern. And, and my, my memories of the drinking of my mom and dad were going and watching uh, wrestling on Wednesday night at the bar, you know, watching television because we didn't have one. And... Uh, 
Then we go like on Fridays or Saturdays and sit in the bar. My brother and I would play pool and drink great pop and eat chocolate bars. And my dad would sit at the bar. My mom would sit in the booth and talk with the women. My dad would talk railroad at the bar. Uh, in Superior, up until the mid-60s, it was illegal for women to sit at the bar. Go figure. <laughs> I don't know what they were thinking the women were going to do at the bar, um, but it certainly was against the law for you to be there. So you've come a long way, baby. Um, <laughs> but I, I grew up in, uh, well, I shouldn't say I grew up. I graduated from high school. I joined the service, went over to France for two and a half years and came back and, and uh uh, in Wisconsin, back in the 60s, early 60s, uh, there was an 18-year-old law. You were in town; you had to be 21 to drink uh, in taverns. And out in the county, if they served beer, it was an 18-year-old uh, joint, so you could go out in the taverns and drink at 18 out in the county. So that's what we would do. We'd put on 150, 200 miles a night, driving around out in the county, drinking beer. And a lot of kids got killed doing that. Now, Sandy was supposed to go with her fiance. Um, out drinking on this particular night, and she got in an argument with him, decided not to go, and he and three other people were killed in a car accident on the way back from the colony. And that happened every year. I mean, it was just the yearbooks come out, uh, the high school yearbooks, and there was always this memoriam of somebody that died, and nine times out of ten it was in a car accident coming from the colony. On a particular Wednesday night, I was, I was like 22 years old, I suppose, my friend Dale called me up and asked if I'd like to go out and have a few beer, beers out of Clara's, which was a county tavern. And I was old enough to, we were old enough to drink in town, but all the young girls would go out to the <laughs> county bars, so that's where we'd go. I, do you ever wonder why guys don't ever date women their own age? Is there like a maturity difference there someplace? And see women going out. <laughs> um, but anyway, we went out in the county and, and uh, we're sitting at the, in a table at a table drinking a couple of beers and, and uh Dale's girlfriend comes in and she's got this girl with her and man I want to tell you she had a black sweater on that was fulfilled with maximum potential <laughs> and she had uh her hair was frosted and went straight up on top of her head like this, looked like a root beer float. And that was during the days of frosted hair and, and she had her hair frosted and as they came walking over towards us, oh man, was, I, I was just so nervous. My, my knees were knocking. I'm thinking, oh crap, here comes Nancy and she's got this woman with her and they're going to sit down with us. And I like girls. I liked them a lot. And I, I like to imagine what they, we probably could do together. But that's about where it was. It was in the imagine what we could do thing. And this was 1966, so there was no MTV or any of that crap going on. And, and, uh, um, Sure enough, Nancy sat down with Dale, and this, this girl sat next to me. And man, oh man, that was polyester days, and the sparks were flying between her hip and my hip. And the smell of Aquanet filled the air. and I'm just It's just like, wow. And, and even today, I, I, Aquanet, you know, it's kind of like, okay. I was talking uh, at a conference uh, uh, several weeks ago. And when the lady introduced me, she said, I, I have something for Chuck, and she got a can of Aquanet and it. And so I, I, I've told this story before. But um, anyway, she's sitting next to me, and, and we were introduced, and, and she was so beautiful. And, and she said, Chuck, what do, you, what do you do for a living? And I said, I, I, 
Because I was a dork and I was an idiot. And I, no girls would look at me and say, wow, look at that handsome looking guy. Because I wasn't handsome looking. You know, I had this long hair and, and uh, big thick glasses. And that those, that's when the big thick lenses and the big thick frames were all in style. I looked I look like Buddy Holly. I did. I honestly looked like Buddy Holly. I had that kind of aircraft carrier hairdo that stuck out. Sandy says you could have landed planes on top of my head. And, and uh, I, I just had no self-esteem whatsoever. I just knew no girl would ever love me or like me. I had gone out with a, a few girls, and, and they hadn't gone anywhere. And then all of a sudden, here's this beautiful girl sitting next to me, and I thought, she'll never talk to me again. And this will be a one-time shot, and she'll be gone. Although I already had us married and had kids and the white picket fence just because I was getting sparked alongside my hip bone here. And then she, 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 she uh, touched me on my ankle with her toe. Have you ever been touched on the ankle with a toe? In 1966, that was as close to the real thing as there was. Oh, my God, I, I'm telling you, I had dreams about that for weeks on end. And, the next week we went out. We double dated with Dale and Nancy, and we did a couple of double dates. And after that, we were just like a hand fitting into the glove. We were two sick people looking for one another. And, you know, we had friends. I had friends, and she had friends. But it's just like we were together, and after that, it's we were together. And ten months later, we got married. And, and we got married in uh, January 21st of 1967. And it was 38 below zero in Superior, Wisconsin, the night we got married. And, you know, we, we drank and we partied and we had fun and we were in love and we were two kids and we had no idea of a, a healthy, intimate relationship because, you know, I don't even know if intimate was in my vocabulary back then. I just, I, I, I had a preconceived idea of what was supposed to be happening and I'm assuming Sandy did too. She was ni uh, 19 when we got married and I was 23. So we had no clue. And... The drinking was going on, and, and uh, like at our wedding, I wanted to go home, and she wanted to drink. And that pretty much set the stage. Was it alcoholism? We never thought about alcoholism. That wasn't a word in our vocabulary either. Uh, the drunks that we knew were winos that lived down in, on 3rd Street, and, and, and occasionally would come knocking at our door for handouts. And winos were what my father-in-law worked with at the mission. And, and that was our idea of alcoholism. And we, we had a baby nine months after we were married, and, and Chuck was born in, in uh, November. And, and then a year later, we had our daughter, Chris, and three years later, we had our son, Chuck. And, and the drinking was just going crazy. And we both drank. But, you know, I, I, I drink for so long, and I think, God, I'm getting sick of this crap. So I start drinking tomato juice or Dr. Pepper. And, and I was... I, I was, I felt like I was, and I was told I was the party pooper, the guy that never had any fun. And, you know, some, when you're battling with a, with an alcoholic, it's an interesting situation because I remember this. We were driving down Stinson Avenue, and Sandy said, where do you want to go tonight? And I said, I don't care. Oh, I'm so sick of that. You every time you, know, you just never say what you want to do. You don't make decisions. You're just like, you don't care, and I have to make the decisions and blah, blah, blah. Well, and then we went somewhere. Well, then the next weekend, we're going down Stinson Avenue, and Sandy says, where do you want to go? I says, the crowbar. Jesus, you always want to go to the crowbar. You never want to go anywhere else. And that's kind of the way our life went. And, 
And as the drinking progressed, uh, our, our life just got crazier. And I, know, I never thought about it being alcoholism. I never even thought about being drinking too much. I thought about more as like, I don't have any control. Like our friends in the neighborhood, the husbands controlled the wives, so I assumed. And, and, and in my, our situation, it seemed like it was flipped around. And in our situation, the guys in the fam other families, the guys would come home and the wives would chew them out and scream at them and yell at them and curse them and everything. And in our situation, my wife would come home and I'd scream at her, curse her out, and, and you know, be angry with her. And it was just like something's wrong here. But not drinking. That wasn't the problem. It was our relationship problem. And we went to some counseling for that, which didn't help because the counselor didn't have the answers that we wanted to hear. Um, I quit going out with with that alcoholic. I, I quit going out with her because we just would start arguing and we we would have we would it would end up in a terrible fight. And Sandy was a militant alcoholic, and and sometimes I I'd be asked to intercede in her difficulties. Uh, she one particular time there was this redheaded guy there at the bar and he had an afro, and and Sandy didn't like that afro, so she grabbed him by the hair and put his forehead down into her knee. And then as his friends came, she goes, Chuck, what are you going to do about this? And so, but thank God we were in a North End bar, so we had our friends, and they came to our assistance, and nothing did happen from that. But those are kind of things that went on, and I thought, well, I'm just not going to go uh, with, out with her anymore. Um, at the time, and if I'm talking about somebody drinking or somebody's alcoholism or that, those crazy, insane alcoholics, and I don't have to launch into that because you all know they're nuts anyway, and... and uh, but I'm not talking about them, and I'm not talking about Sandy's drinking. I want, to, I want to share with you the insanity of a person that's not alcoholic. The insanity of a person that's being affected by somebody else's alcoholism. And Mark and I were just kind of bantering back and forth after breakfast this morning, and he says, we're just alike. And I said, yeah, except my obsession is a little bit different than his obsession. His obsession was alcohol. Mine was the alcoholic. And, and, and not only the alcoholic, people in need. I was obsessed with people in need. I, I wanted to help people. And I, I can remember way back to when I was a little kid wanting to do that. But the, uh, one particular night, Sandy went out with her, with her girlfriend. There's a, there's a, alcoholics have these people that force them to drink. <laughs> yeah, uh, she would never go out on her own and do this. It was, it was Squeegee's fault. That was her friend, Squeegee. Squeegee's fault. She forced her to go out, she forced her to drink, and she wouldn't bring her home, and she wanted to come home, and all that kind of stuff. And I couldn't stand that woman. I hated that woman's guts. I honestly did. First, first night I met her, she was throwing a beer can at a guy across the bar and hitting him in the head with it. And about four years ago, her name was in the paper for throwing a beer can at a guy and hitting him in the head with it. <laughs> so some things never changed. But, see, you know, I, I, I didn't like Squeegee because I thought she was the, the root of all our problems. When Sandy got out of treatment, Squeegee came to me and she said, you bring your kids over to my house. I'm going to take them out to the lake for a week so you and Sandy can have some time alone together to get to know one another. See, why I hated her for something that I thought she was and she wasn't. My own reality is so skewed. It was just skewed. It was, it, it's incredible, the, the things that can go on in your head. This particular night, Sandy's over at Squeegee's house drinking. I knew she was going there. She said she was going there, except this is 3 o'clock in the morning. It's a February. 
in, in uh, Superior, Wisconsin, and my wife's not home. My two kids are within 12 months of one another. Somebody, somebody called them. If, if you have two children born in the same year, they call them Irish twins. I never, I just heard that about a month ago. That's pretty cool. And if you stop to think about it, it's very interesting. It's a stereotypical statement, that, uh, but it's interesting. Anyway, our two kids are, are a year apart. And they're both in bed and, and in their cribs. We had two cribs. And I'm downstairs going nuts because my wife's not home. And she should be home. She should be with me. That's where she belongs. And I'm getting angrier and angrier. And finally I thought, the hell with this. I'm going over to that house. It's 3 o'clock in the morning. I know where she is. I'm going over there and get her butt out of there. So I went over. I drove the car over. I left the kids home alone. And I drove over to that house. It was about a mile or so away. And I sat outside, and I'm thinking, I'm going up there, and I'm going to grab her by her long hair and bang her down the stairs, and I'm going to show those guys up there who's boss, and I'm going to show the women who's boss. And I'm, I'm going to go in there, and she's gonna, I'm just going to smack her good. And I sat in that car, and I'm, I'm going to go up there, and I'm going to go up there. And I started up the car and drove home. And what did I accomplish? Who's the crazy one? <laughs> I drove over there, I saw the lights on, I could see the shadows on the window shade, and I turned around, I went home, and I left my two babies home alone in February in Superior, Wisconsin. And, and we get house fires in the wintertime. People burn up in Superior, Wisconsin, because it's cold there. And those kids, what, what if they woke up and there was nobody there to, to, for them? Uh, the thoughts just scare me today. I get goosebumps just thinking about it, that, that what could have happened. Who's the crazy one, the alcoholic? who's in there having a couple beers with friends, or the non-alcoholic sitting in that car vibrating from all the coffee I've been drinking and leaving my kids home alone. It's clear to me who the, who the one is nuts. Um, one particular night we went, we went out to a, a, a dance. And I don't, I don't dance. I, you see what size I am. I'm a big guy. <laughs> and I got two left feet at least. And, and, and uh, Sandy leads. And Sandy's five foot six. She fits right about here, you know. And so when we danced, Sandy would always push me around the dance floor. And it would be like a barge pushing a, or a tug pushing a barge down a river. Never bumped into anybody. I don't know how she could do that, you know. Well, this particular night we're there, and you alcoholics probably aren't going to understand this, but when, when you get to a certain point in drinking, your eyelids just kind of come down about halfway like broken window shades. They're just there, you know. And then you tilt your head back and kind of look, and then I know something nuts is going to happen because that's what would take place. It was either, it's too hot in here, I'm taking my clothes off, I don't like that guy's afro, I dance on the table, sing Bill Bailey. Sandy has a beautiful voice and she sings beautifully. She sings in several choirs. And when she was drinking, she would go up to the band, you know, which some guys, people do when they sing with the band, and she would do that. And invariably she'd say, do you know Bill Bailey? And then she'd sing... Not Bill Bailey, but things that rhyme with Chuck. <laughs> you can imagine what words rhyme with Chuck. And everybody would go, oh, Chuck, you're so lucky to have a wife like this. She's so crazy. And said, She's crazy, all right. And I'd have that, what my, grand, my, my father-in-law used to call a piss house grin. And, and uh, I did, oh, yeah, she's, I just love her to death. And inside, I hate her guts. God, I hated her. And outwardly, I didn't show that. As, as much as I, I, I didn't want to show that. There was times, of course, when I blew. So 
I get her out on the dance floor, and I could see she's drunk, and I danced her across the dance floor, down the stairs, and into the car. And then I did what I always do. I carried her in the house, and I put her to bed. That was the way our life was. When I stopped going out with her, out drinking with her, I would sit on the, on the couch waiting for her to come home, and I'd be looking out the window. We live on two dead-end streets in Superior. There's crossroads are both dead end and it's amazing how much traffic goes down a dead end street at three o'clock in the morning when you're waiting for somebody to come home and then I mean I'm 230 some pounds and I'm sitting down there and here comes this little 120 pound thing coming towards the house either she's driving or somebody's driving her or whatever and she as soon as I knew she was coming in and I'd run upstairs and jump in bed and pretend I was sleeping why I, I've never figured that out. Was I afraid of her? I didn't want to start an argument or something? One night, she came to the door, and she never came in. Well, I had already jumped in bed, and I realized she's not in the house. So I went downstairs, and she was standing out in the front steps, and I said, come on in. I'm not coming in. Come on in. I'm not coming in. So I was like a guy hollering at a puppy dog, you know. Get in this house now. Get in here. No. I'm not coming in. So I chased her. I was going to chase her down. So I ran down the street and through the yard between us and the neighbor and back around, hurt my heel on the curb, come in the house. Now, who's nuts? The alcoholic who don't want to come in the house or the guy who's stone cold sober chasing her in his underwear? <laughs> Pretty obvious to me who's the crazy one. You know, and those things went on and on like that. And, and uh, it was just a crazy, insane place. My kids, you know, who do the kids think is crazy? Sandy'd come home. She'd bring chocolate bars and pop, kiss the kids. I'm roaring around the house like a maniac, kicking the dog and screaming at them. And when they were little enough and you know, it was they didn't know how to tell time and it was wintertime in Superior, it's dark at 5 o'clock. Time to go to bed, kids. Put them to bed. Then I can worry about things and and cuss and, and walk around and be angry and sit by that telephone, which had a mirror behind it where I could look at myself waiting to answer that telephone that I knew was going to ring and it was going to be something like I had a flat tire and I can't come home. It wasn't that she was out drinking. Put the kids to bed. My little daughter Chrissy comes to the top of the stairs and she says, Dad, I need to drink water. So I go upstairs, give her a drink of water, bring her back, put her in bed, kiss her on her forehead. Come back downstairs. A little while later, Chrissy comes to the top of the stairs. Dad, there's a boogeyman in my bedroom. Go up the, up the stairs, got my flashlight, and we look underneath their bed and look in her closet, go in Chucky's room and look in there. Chrissy, there's no boogeyman here. Everything's okay. You go back to bed. Kiss her on her little forehead and put her back in bed. And she'd say, where's Mama? I'd say, shut up! <laughs> Who do the kids think is crazy? Mom brings them pop and candy bars. Chrissy's crime was asking me where Mama was. And I'm so angry and so embarrassed and feeling so crappy inside myself about myself in this situation that I scream in her face, spit flying in her face probably. Who do the kids think is crazy, the alcoholic or the non-alcoholic? I'm thumping my son on the chest, my oldest son on the chest, and he's crying. He's cowering between the sink and the wall in the bathroom. He's crying. I said, what the hell are you crying about? He says, I don't like you, Dad. You're mean. You scare me. What the hell you got to be scared of? I'm your father. Yeah, well, the father I was. Well, you know, if you're new in this fellowship, and when you talk about the ninth step, and you talk about making amends, 
God, some of the amends you have to make. You know, a lot of people are afraid of the fourth step. A lot of people are afraid of the fifth step. A lot of people spend years on the ninth step. A couple months ago, I was in Dallas, Texas, talking at a conference, the ATAC conference in Dallas, Texas. <clears throat> we stayed with that oldest son that I thumped on the chest. Stayed at his house. And my youngest son from California flew to be up with us to stay at his house. And my daughter flew from Alaska to stay at his house and be with us. And they sat third row back when I talked. Whatever cost amends are, whatever the price of making amends, it's worth every bit of it. It's worth every bit of extending that, expanding that energy, of taking that chance, of taking that risk. Because someday your kids can come back and say, man, I love you. You know what happened to me? And I just realized this a few weeks back. I remember the bad stuff in our relationship, our family relationship. And thank God for Al-Anon going to the Al-Anon meetings and hearing somebody else sharing about the good stuff that happened. And I started thinking, there was good stuff. There was. I had to go back and think about that good stuff. I had to get part of it in my conscious mind that there was good things that happened too. That those kids knew unconditional love for their father and their mother. As screwed up as we were. Our life just kept going in the toilet. We didn't know what to do. I thought about leaving her, but I, I, was, afraid to, I, I was afraid to leave her. I hated her, and I loved her. I hated her on Friday. I, hated her on I loved her on Saturday. I hated her on Sunday. It was back and forth. Before she went bowling, I loved her. When she wasn't coming home from bowling, I was fantasizing her driving the car in the river and drowning. And then people could love me the way I'm supposed to be loved. The, the neighbor women would come over and give me hugs, and, and everything would be fine. I had the pallbearers picked out. I had the obituary in my mind. I used to fantasize about this as I was laying in bed. And then she'd come home, and she'd struggle upstairs and go into the bed, and I'd put my hand on her hip, and I'd just love her because she was finally home. I look at this guy over here, Stanley. When I first met him, I almost fell over. He looks exactly, without having hair so long, of course, as my, one of my best friends. He looks just like Steve. Steve sobered up about a year before Sandy uh, got into her situation. Steve was one of the pallbearers I had on that list, that imaginary list. You know? <laughs> After Sandy sobered up, she started going to AA meetings with Steve. Scratch his name off of that Paul Bear list. <laughs> he was my best friend. He told me what used to go on between him and some of the neighborhood ladies, you know, so I wasn't. But yeah, he, he just, he looks just like him. It's just uncanny. And he, he's got that soft, quiet talk, too. And, and he doesn't, he's, Steve's not from Georgia, but man, I tell you, you two are, you two are twins. Anyway, uh, our life was just going into a toilet. I, I bring this part up, and I, and I make a correction as I stand here today because this is, I realize over the years that I've been talking about this that I have made a mistake. Um, my sexual identity, my sexuality was such that I didn't think that 
women found me sexually attractive. And here I'm married to a beautiful woman, and we've got two, three kids. The only time I thought Sandy was attracted to me sexually is when she was drinking. So my plan was to get her drinking and then level it off. And then we could make mad passion and love and be romantic. But it's hard to do that with an alcoholic because where, where do you level it? It's like the Grand Tetons, you know. It's like that ride that they got in that, that magazine up in the room, that Six Flags Over Georgia or whatever it is. That, and by the time you get there, you're already gone. Or it just ain't worth the ride. No, that's not. I shouldn't say that. But anyway, that's, that's where I was at, you know. And, and I always, in my mind, I always thought, I always felt badly about that part. Because sometimes when Sandy would come home screaming drunk and she'd puke in the toilet and I'd rub her back and say, oh, it's okay, hon, it's okay. And inside I'm going, oh, stick your head in the toilet. And then I'd bring her into bed and I'd rub her back until she fell asleep. And then I'd take advantage of her sexually. No, I'm not proud of that. And I thought I was the only one. I thought, you are a scum to do that. In uh, Elanon Faces Alcoholism, second edition, and this is where my mistake is. In Elanon Faces Alcoholism, second edition, there's a, a story in there about a guy whose life paralleled mine, except eventually he divorced. And he talks about uh, um, taking advantage of a passed out body. I thought, my God, I'm not alone. There's other people that have done this. See, I used to say it was the first edition. I always say, an Elanon Faces Alcoholism first edition. And the other day I was looking for it and couldn't find it. So I went to my second edition. There it was. But I've shared this story many times from the podium, and a lot of times guys will come up to me afterwards and say, you know, Chuck, I did that too. I did that too. You know, Chuck, I had a death wish for my wife too. I have a lot of women come up and say I had death wish for my husband. I mean, that's a very common occurrence. You love them and you hate them. You love them and you hate them. Uh, one lady, she was a very prominent lady, and Tom was going to Eleanor, and she said, I'd, I'd push that son of a SOB down the stairs, but he'd probably live, and I'd have to take care of him for the rest of his life. <laughs> but that's, that's the way our life was, and, and that's, that's the insanity that I had. And a relative of Sandy's went into a treatment facility, and, and uh, part of the treatment philosophy back then was that if you wanted to participate in Family Week, you had to go to Al-Anon. So Sandy started going to Al-Anon with her mom and dad. And her, her dad, by the way, is an, was an alcoholic that had 40 years, a plug in the jug for 40 years, except when he wanted to drink to prove he could stop drinking, and, which is something that's totally foreign to me. But uh, anyway, um, they started going to Al-Anon. That's great. You know, she's probably going to learn some stuff in Al-Anon. That would be good. And, and poor Debbie, she's 21 years old, she's in a treatment center, she's never going to be able to drink again, you know, and I just felt bad for her because her life was going to be so boring, <laughs> you know, sans the alcohol. And one night, one Tuesday night, I'm sitting home and, and the phone rings. Sandy's at Alnon with her and her mom and her dad. I, the phone rings, and I answered it, and it was Sandy's mom. She said, uh, is Sandy there? I said, no, she's not here, you know. You ever get that... Where, where you, you just get that burn that goes right through and comes out of your ears when something, you, you have this fear. And, and that's what happened to me when she said, is Sandy there? Because if she wasn't with her, where the hell was she? So she said, Chuck, I think 
she might have gone to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I don't know where this came from, but I said, Mom, maybe that's where she belongs. And it must have been where she belonged, because that was, that was like the beginning of April of 1980, that she walked down the steps of Melanon and went into Alcoholics Anonymous, and she's never left. She has always gone to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I thought, all right, do we have a maid or what? My wife's going to A&A, and, and things are going to be great. I mean, I'm going to have, I'm going to have mashed potatoes and meatloaf on the table when I get home from work. God almighty, my, my shorts are going to be turned right side out, fresh out of the dryer. The socks will be mated. This is going to be a one good marriage. You guys are laughing, so you must know what happened. I didn't even get the car to go to work anymore. Now, I worked in a grocery warehouse. I'm a retired teamster. I worked in a grocery warehouse for 30 years, and a lot of that time I spent in the freezer. And I come out, and it's like July, and I come out of the freezer, and my face is burning, and my legs are cold, and, you know, it's just, it's a, and snotsicles hanging down, you know, and I come, all I want to do is go home and eat and relax, and I come out of the warehouse door, and there's no car. There's no wife. Where in the hell is she now? Here she comes. Here comes this, I had a 65 black uh, uh, Suburban. Oh, that thing was a choice. It's screaming up, slamming on the brakes. I get in the car. What's for supper? 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 How can you think of supper? we got to go back to the club. That was a new, new word in our vocabulary was the club, the Eleanor Club. Uh, Sandy, I'm hungry. I, I, I haven't listened to the other side of Liz's tape. Liz's, i got to listen to the other side of Liz's tape. So we go back to the Eleanor Club, and if you haven't been in an Eleanor Club, you haven't lived. We walk in the door, and the damn smoke is about 10 inches off the floor. And, and they're, they're playing this, they're singing this kind of music. <laughs> cigarette, Carl, you got a cigarette? <laughs> and they're talking about studying this. And that coffee that they make is like, if you've got all the dirty socks in Atlanta and boil them, then that would be Eleanor Club coffee. And it just, the smell, and it was just creepy in there. That's where we'd go. And we'd sit down at the damn folding table, and there'd be that black tape player, and she'd put it on the other side of this tape, and we'd sit there and listen. Ah, I've had 48 years of sobriety, and life's wonderful. All, all I want to do is go home, for God's sake. I've got supper waiting for me, I thought. And then she got this sponsor. Now, we drank in the North End bars, and they were bad places. They were tough places. Sandy's spiritual advisor, her sponsor was a lady that when she walked towards you, she looked like a 54 Buick going 80 miles an hour. This is a, she was a scary-looking lady. Her idea of detachment was to rip a guy's arm off and beat him over the head with it, you know. That's Sandy's sponsor. And Sandy, she still says to this day, Diane had a smile from ear to ear. I'm thinking, oh, Jesus. Diane's husband was a eunuch. I'm sorry. She made him that way. And that's her spiritual advisor. And then, of course, she's going to meetings with Steve. And I'm thinking, this AA is a bunch of crap. And Sandy says, well, go to Al-Anon. I'm not going to Al-Anon. I'm a bunch of old ladies sitting around cackling. I don't need to go to that kind of stuff. I read Ann Landers about Al-Anon. I know what Al-Anon's about. One day we're sitting at the picnic table, side by side. And she says to me, Chuck, I'm going to be going into treatment in a few weeks. When I get out, we may not be together. <laughs> I'm thinking, we got like six weeks of not drinking. I didn't know sobriety yet. Six weeks of not drinking. 
And and now you're telling me we might not be together and you're going to something called a halfway house or something. And you, no, no, uh-uh, no, uh-uh. And I thought, I know, I'll go to Al-Anon. See, I didn't care about steps or traditions or none of that crap. But I figured if I went to Al-Anon, we'd stay together. She'd leave me alone. She wouldn't talk about leaving me anymore and things would be great. So I told her, I said, well, I'll go to Al-Anon with you. I'll go to Al-Anon when you go to your AA meeting. She said, that's a good idea, Chuck. It's tonight. It was Tuesday night, 1609 John Avenue. I walked into that, that place, and she's got me by the hand, and she said, Chuck, I'm going over there to a meeting Alcoholics Anonymous. You're going up to Al Anon. It's on the second floor, third door down on the left. So I walked up those stairs, and I didn't want to be there. And I walked down to that third door on the left, and there was a little smoke-stained sign that said Al Anon. Behind, from behind those doors was coming this noise. They were going, Oh, I thought, man, I would do anything else to go than go there. But I had said I would go, so I, I went to open the door, and the door wouldn't open. The, the top stuck and the bottom open. This house is like 100 years old. And finally, I pushed on it. Honest to God, I fell right into that room of Elanon women. And they all went, oh, it's another man. It's another man. Come on in. Come on in. You know. The fear I had was what the hell they do with the other man. But there was one other little guy there. He was a little guy, probably fit right about here. He was sitting off to the side. And there was uh, the tables, as I remember them, were made into a square. These long folding tables were made into a square, and they sat around them. And at that time, we still smoked in that Alan and I mean, Thank God we don't anymore, but that's the way it was then. So there was a lot of smoking room. The little guy was sitting over here, and I went and sat next to him because he looked strong. He was a guy, and I sat next to him. And... During the course of what went on, I, I don't remember. All I remember is you people knew what was going on inside my body, inside my head, you women. There was a woman there, again, she was staring, Coke bottle glasses, and she was staring at me, and she was smiling at me with this great big smile. I'm thinking, what the hell is this woman looking at me for? And there was another lady there. She was probably about 27 months pregnant, and she had her hair pulled back into a ponytail so tight that she couldn't blink her eyes. And there, there were braids that just stuck out the back of her head. And she couldn't, she was like these weebles that wobble that don't fall down. And those are the two people I remember. And the little guy said something about taking the meeting next week. And when the meeting was over with, the lady with the thick glasses that was staring at me and smiling at me, she started coming towards me. She walked up to me and she said, hello, Chuck. And I'm thinking, how in the hell does she know I'm Chuck? I've never seen this woman before. And she's smiling at me. And then she said to me, I know your mother. Oh, God. Ma's going to find out I went to Al-Anon. If you were in Al-Anon and you see a guy coming in and you know his mother, wait till you get a sp- he gets a sponsor before you tell him I know your mother. Because <laughs> I almost peed my pants when she said that. Because I didn't want Ma to know I was going to Al-Anon, that I was a weak-kneed milk sop that needed help. Well, I started going to Al-Anon, a guy came in the fellowship, and this little guy, by the way, he left. He was only there for a couple weeks, then he was gone. He was um, with the census, and he was there for a few weeks counting people, and then he was gone. But he was, gone, he was there long enough for me to listen to what he had to say and think, this might work for me. And then another guy came in, he was there a few weeks, and I knew him. He was a counselor at a treatment center, and he was coming to Al-Anon, he was a young guy, and I asked him to be my sponsor simply because I was told you need one. Now, I don't remember us really doing a lot. 
of step work or anything like that. But we were just together. So he leaves. One Tuesday night he was there. The next Tuesday night he was gone. And at that time, that was the only meeting in Superior was Tuesday night. And I had no clue of the meetings in Duluth. I wasn't there that long that I knew about those meetings yet. Another guy came in. His name was Frank. And I knew Frank from after the meeting coffee get-togethers. I don't know if you guys do that here. We used to do that a lot in Superior. It's kind of dropped out now. But um, I knew Frank from the coffee sessions, and I had talked to Frank, and our lives were kind of similar. So he started coming to Allen, and I asked him to be my sponsor, and he said, I'll be your sponsor if you be mine. So we co-sponsored one another, and that worked because we were just the two guys, and we went through the steps together, and we did a fourth and fifth step together, and we went on. And, and I, I got really interested in traditions. I got involved in service work. I'm a, a Panel 32 delegate to the World Service Conference, a uh, past delegate. So, But Frank left the program. He, he, he started going to Alcoholics Anonymous, and that's where he stayed, in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I still see him to this day. You see, Elanon did a lot for me. It taught me a lot of things. It opened up my mind. There was all this like acceptance and all the rest of the stuff that comes with Elanon. There's all this higher power. I got in an emotional affair with a woman in Elanon. And I was running my program. God wasn't. I, 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 was, I was twisting the steps and the traditions. I was twisting the meetings. I was twisting the interpretations my way, so that that, that I, so that I could so that I could uh, justify, rationalize where I was in this situation. And it almost ruined my marriage. It almost ruined my family. And that alcoholic wife of mine, who's practicing her program, walked up to me and said, "Chuck, you've got a chain around your neck with two, val two with two precious gems. You've got only room for one." You choose. She says, I can't live like this. You're endangering my sobriety. And I thought, my God, what am I doing? And I did a fourth step on that issue. And I did a fifth step with Frank, my sponsor. And he said something to me about it that I, I, didn't, I didn't really care for. And then he left the program. And I did that same fourth and fifth step with my next sponsor. And I had made the choice and I had done the business. And as I was doing that fourth step... If, if, if I was sitting in my truck at break time and I had a legal pad and I was writing down stuff in that in that legal pad about this situation and about me and I didn't like me during my fourth step I did not like me because the stuff I was writing down I had to look at I was sitting in there and I'm thinking things are getting better Sandy and I are getting along better um, the situation has changed I've made my choice I've gone to my counseling I've done this I've done that I'm just going to put this fourth step aside. Well, several meetings before, there was a guy that had come into our meeting. His name was Ed. And Ed, was, Ed looked like, kind of like Johnny Cash. I mean, he, was, he dressed in black all the time, black leather, and he had his hair. His black hair was slicked way back. And, and Ed was a real quiet guy. And when, when it came to turn to talk one night, he went, Well, if nothing changes, nothing changes. I'll pass. And I thought, what the hell? I could have said it took me ten minutes to say that. You know, what is that? Well, when I put that four-step pad down, Ed came into my mind and said, Chuck, if nothing changes, nothing changes. And I knew at that moment, if I, hadn't, if I didn't finish that four-step and, and bring it to my sponsor and do a fifth step with it, then nothing 
was about to change. If I didn't go forward and, and make those amends, like I had to do with my kids, if I didn't carry that forward, nothing would change. And I would slide right back into that personality that I was in. So I completed that fourth step, and I did the fifth step with my sponsor. And it, it, it changed my life. It truly changed my life. Um, my youngest son, Kurt. Kurt was our love baby. Kurt was uh, the baby that we talked about having. You know, back in the 60s, when I got married anyway, when you got married, you had a kid. And then Chris, by our own admission, was an accident. And, uh, and she knows that, so I mean, it's not like I'm telling anything out of school. We got a lawsuit in Trojan as $3 million, but haven't got anything yet. <laughs> Kurt was the one we talked about. We're going to have another baby. We're going to do this with him. He's going to do that for him. This is going to be available to him. We want it, Kurt. We must have talked about it for at least five or ten minutes. And we decided to have another one. <laughs> and so Kurt, Kurt was born February 27, 1972. Sandy was in labor about three and a half minutes. Boom. Kurt come out. He had the, the doctor had a catcher's mitt on. Boom. Caught Kurt and away Kurt goes. And he just got went. I mean, he never stopped. He was just a kid that he was blonde hair, blue eyed, tall, Beautiful kid, a beautiful boy, and he was our our light and our, our shining armor, knight in shining armor. At 13 years old, a friend of Kurt's uh, father came over to our house and he said, oh, "I got to tell you, um, Kurt and Mike spent the night in the tent last night, and they got drunk, and Kurt puked in our tent." Oh, he says, "Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Boys will be boys, but I just thought I'd let you know." So I told Sandy about it, and she says, oh, God, what are we going to do? I'm in Al-Anon, right? I know how to handle alcoholics <laughs> or potential alcoholics. So I brought Kurt into our bedroom and shut the door, and Kurt said, oh, no, we've got to have this talk. And Kurt and I had this talk. Father to son, Al-Anon to future alcoholic. And I just laid it down to him, you know, all about the things, the bad things about drinking and drugs and all this stuff that could happen and everything like this. And when we got done, the boy had tears in his eyes and I had tears in my eyes and I went out to see Sandy and I said, Sam, don't worry about it. He's never going to do that again. And I felt so serene in my Alanonistic mind. And Sandy in her alcoholistic mind said, you know, Chuck, he's going to do it again and again and again. And guess who was right? Kurt drank and smoked and poked and snorted and rubbed and caressed and did if, if he could get high on it, he did it. Thank God, and I'm serious when I say this, thank God there was no meth in America when Kurt was using because he'd be dead, I'm sure he would. Now, this is where love and hate comes in. God, we loved that kid. God, we hated the stuff that was going on. And Kurt came in the house one night with a friend of his, and I had changed the locks on the doors. We had a double deadbolt lock on our bedroom door. When we went to bed at night, and or if I was working nights, Sandy would lock that bedroom door. She slept behind a locked bedroom door because she was afraid of our son, who was so beautiful and so peaceful and so mild he would never hurt anybody. But he had two uh, farmer size in his bedroom and a, a glove made out of razor blades. But he would never hurt anybody. That peaceful person. But that peaceful person was on alcohol and drugs. One night he came through the door with his friend and we said, Son, you can't live in our house anymore. He said, You're throwing me out. We said, No, your behavior 
is what's causing you to leave this fa this family right now. Here's your uh, pillow. Here's a, uh, a sleeping bag. You're not welcome in our house until you quit using alcohol and drugs. I said, we love you, but we hate your behavior. And those nights when I fantasized about Sandy dying, I loved her and I hated the behavior. But I thought I loved her and hated her. That wasn't the case. I loved her. I hated the behavior. And there's our son standing in front of us, long blonde hair, black leather jacket, Levi's. And we're saying to him, you're not welcome in our house anymore because of your behavior. He turned to me and he said, I love you, Dad. And I said, son, I love you too. And he walked out of our life out that door. For the next two years, we saw Kurt roaming around Superior. He lived in a drug dealer's uh, closet for a while. He lived underneath the steps of an apartment building for a while. There's, I don't know where he was for a long while, but we would see him and we'd look the other way because that long blonde hair would be matted and caked and his jacket was torn and he had holes in his pants and he would shuffle down the street in this fog and we just couldn't stand to look at it. And we expected phone calls and one day there was a phone call. The phone call came and it was Kurt and he said, Dad, can I come home and live? And I said, yeah, Kurt, you can come home, but you can't come home and use. We will not allow you to use or, or uh, use alcohol or drugs in our house. He said, I don't want to do that anymore. Dad, I think I'm really sick. Can I go to the doctor? I said, yeah, you can go to the doctor. Brought him home, and Kurt has hepatitis C from sharing a needle. And the doctor told him, you're going to die. Now, see, Kurt was always bragging to us about dying before he got to be 20. I'm not going to live to be 20 anyway, so what the hell do you care? Why should you love me? I'm not going to live to be 20 anyway. We have to love you. You're our son. And you're going to live to be 20. No, I'm not. He came home from that doctor and he said, Dad, I'm never going to use anything again the rest of my life. He quit smoking. He quit drinking. He quit using. He, he finished his high school education, uh, got a, a high school equivalency diploma. He went to University of Wisconsin, Superior Graduated summa cum laude, I guess that's how they pronounce it, 3.89 grade average. He went to graduate school at Claremont, California, graduated a master's degree in visual arts. Now I say that, not because of what we did, but because you people in Alcoholics Anonymous and you people in Al-Anon helped Sandy and I, her and AA, me and Al-Anon, to make healthy choices. And the choice we made to have Kurt leave that home was for us because we could not live with that situation in our home and we had to make a choice and that was it thank you thank you so very very much for helping us make that decision I spoke at the uh, Salt Bay Roundup out in uh, out California Torrance California there was thousands of people sitting out in the audience when I told this story and my son Kurt was sitting over in the corner with Sandy listening to his dad tell this story and it was this story right up until this point and when I got done you guys got up and hugged me. You alcoholics and you al people got up and hugged me. And then you went over to that table and you hugged my son. You said, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous, Kurt. Welcome to al Kurt. You keep coming back, you hear? That's what you did to him. You're going to be an example. Those of you that are sitting in this room today are going to be an example to somebody. And what kind of example do you want to be? Those hundreds of people, maybe a thousand, I don't know, that got up and said that to him, made an impact on that boy. One night I came home, Sandy's on the phone. 
talking about page 449, talking about 85, 86, 87. She's got a whole covey of pigeons, you know. That's if she's on the phone, a lot of times I hear the big book being passed back and forth on the phone. She's talking about the big book, you know. I'm thinking, well, she's got a pigeon. I turned around to go back downstairs, and all of a sudden I heard her say, your dad just came home, Kurt. He loves you. I love you too. Goodbye. Kurt's an Alcoholics Anonymous. And I totally give you people the, 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 it's you. You did that. You loved a person into AA. And it's so, I'm so grateful today that I can sit and talk AA stuff with that kid, that I can sit and talk Al-Anon stuff with that kid because he goes to Al-Anon as well. His housemate goes to Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon. This is a kid that should be dead. This is a kid that could be dead. He's got hep C, and, and it could come back. But right now he, he eats healthy foods. He's into all this kind of health stuff. You know, he runs, he bites, he does all this stuff. The other day, uh, last time I saw him, you know, in Texas, I'm eating a hot dog. Says the ma, Dad shouldn't eat those hot dogs. They aren't good for him. <laughs> Besides that, he doesn't chew enough. <laughs> this is a kid that's huffing gasoline till it's coming out of his ears, and he's telling me I shouldn't eat a hot dog. <laughs> Why do I keep going to Al-Anon? I've been going to Al-Anon for 26 years this month. And I, <laughs> I've never... I've never not gone. There's been times when I haven't wanted to go. You know, the, the recliner feels pretty good when you're supposed to be at your 6 o'clock meeting. But, but I've been in 26 years this month, and, and people, my mother included, say, what? Why do you still go to al -Anon? Okay, I come home from work. Now, this is an old story. I've been retired for eight years, but everybody says, tell that story. So i got to tell it. I come home from work. I walk through the door. Sandy says, my love. And when Sandy says to me, my love, I just, I just melt. She says, my love, go out in the front porch and sit down at the table. And we've got this little round table out there with two chairs. She says, you go sit out at that table. I'm going to bring you your supper. Mashed potatoes, corn on the cob, and meatloaf. Now, was I fantasizing when Sandy first started going to the Able, getting supper on the table, and here I come home. It's like 20 years later, but I come home. <laughs> There's supper on the table. She comes out. She's got this glass with the milk and the water streaming down the sides of it. You know, she sets the milk glasses down. She comes in. She sets my plate down. She comes in with her plate. Buffy, our Labrador, is sitting on the other end of the table. And this is like marital bliss. It can't get any better than this. So I take my corn on the cob, and she takes hers, and I start buttering mine. She's buttering hers. And one of us is cutting a, a pad of butter off the quarter, and rotating the cob, making sure that the pat of butter covers all the uh, corn. The other person has their cob of corn, and they are running it through the quarter of butter, back and forth, vertically, across, <laughs> rotating the cob. Well, then one says to the other one, uh, you know, that's, that's not the proper way of buttering corn. <laughs> Don't get ahead of me now. <clears throat> and the other one says, well, you're the one that told me to butter the corn this way. And the other one says, I would never tell you to butter the corn that way because it's not the right way to butter the corn. The corn is to be buttered by the quarter, not, or by the, the, the pad, not the quarter. I used to butter the corn by the pad, and then you told me to use the quarter. I swear to God you told me that. I would never tell you that. Well, <clears throat> I became aware that corn kernels were coming out of my mouth, <laughs> and that Buffy was sitting on the other side of the table. She was catching them as they were about... <laughs> 
So because I had so much Al-Anon in me, and it was working so well, I, I, I detached. I said, the hell with you. And I took my corn cob and I threw it down on my mashed potatoes, and it landed right nose first like a rocket. Right in my mashed potatoes. And I got up and I said, I'm getting out of here. And I left. And we live right on Lake Superior. We live two blocks off the bay of Lake Superior. I walked down to that bay, and I'm, I'm steaming, man. I am really P.O.'d about this. I mean, she told me how to butter corn. And so we're, I'm, I'm gone. I'm out, you know. I walked down there, and I look over, and here's the blue Huron. The blue Huron's got his neck crooked into an S. You know how blue Hurons do that. He's standing in the shallows and the cattails, and all of a sudden, bap, down he comes, and he comes back with a fish. And I thought, you've got your supper, and I haven't got mine. So I'm getting resentful at this blue heron, you know. But then I thought, of course, he ain't got another blue heron standing there going, head first. I'll swallow the fish head first. <laughs> so I did what you did. I laughed. You know, because I'm a funny guy. I'm a funny guy. So I laughed. And, and, and what I did was I, I said the serenity prayer. And you know when you're working your program, and I don't know about alcoholics, but this is like for Al-Anon, when you're working your Al-Anon program, it isn't like you go, let's see, where should I have this one? Is this in step one or is this in step three? This, this stuff is in your head and you're living the program, the stuff is flying like computer speed through your head. I said this to prayer, and I said, oh, God, i got to go home and make amends. That's, that's step nine. Let's see, I'm taking an inventory right now. That's, that's step, step ten. Uh, you know, all this stuff is going on in my brain as I'm walking down these railroad tracks. And... I got to the bridge where I used to fantasize Sandy falling, driving in the river. I got to that bridge and I'm watching a, a kid and a dog chasing a stick and, and man, it was just great. I'm, I'm just thanking God and I'm thinking, you got to go home and make amends. Now, I'm working my L&M program. Sandy's working her A, a program. I'm going to go home and make amends. She's going to make amends. Everything is going to be fine. It's gonna, oh, stop it. It's going to be good. We aren't going to worry about this. This is, this is corn on the cob for God's sake. It's not like infidelity or something. You know, we, we argue about things all like the size of meatballs and stuff. It's just... So I think, well, I'm going to go home now. And I'm going to make amends and things will be fine. I felt very serene because I had been practicing my own program and breathing deeply. So I hear the siren coming. There's a cop car, an ambulance, and, and a, a fire truck went by on the highway, which was about three blocks away. And just for an instant, I thought, I hope to hell she thinks I jumped in the river and they're coming to pull me out. And then I laughed. Because that's why I keep going to Al-Anon. Because like 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 the price on a on a new car you see on TV or you see these advertisements for soap or something, no, there's always this little disclaimer that says, subject to change without notice. <laughs> and that's my serenity. I mean you all clocks got it made. If you've got no arms and you can't bend over, you're not gonna drink that stuff sitting in front of you, so you're gonna have sobriety for thirty eight years. Oh, don't, don't tell me. <laughs> but us Elenons, we're always getting ticked off about something. So I say, I've had serenity since 7 o'clock this morning when I stubbed my toe into the dresser, you know. So anyway, I, I turn around and I'll go home because I felt good. I'm going home, tell Sandy I'm sorry. I walked in the door, I says, and she was doing the dishes, and I says, "Hun." I want to make amends for my actions in this argument we had about the corn on the cob. I said, it was corn on the cob for Pete's sake. I'm sorry. Just let, Let's just carry on. She said, yeah, me too. She said, it was a silly argument to get into, and, and it shouldn't have happened. And she said, uh, Chuck, are you still hungry? Notice it wasn't my love anymore. 
And I, and I, and I, that's very valuable to me. <laughs> um, she says, Chuck, are you still hungry? I said, yeah. She says, well, it's, it's in the fridge. So I walked over to the refrigerator, opened up the door, and I pulled out this plate that had my mashed potatoes, my corn on the cob, and my um, uh, meatloaf on it. And the, the corn on the cob was still stuck right in the center of the mashed potatoes, and she had taken saran wrap and wrapped the whole thing thusly. <laughs> and it looked like a glass teepee. And, and, well, or a phalanx or something. Uh, and so I stuck it in the, in the, in the microwave and, and it had my dinner. And I, I didn't eat the corn on the cob, and I don't eat much corn on the cob to this day that, because of the traumatization there. But <laughs> and, and, you know, what's so wonderful is that you folks have guided us, both A and L and I, and I speak for myself, you have guided me through uh, some real tragedies in our life, some, some horrendous tragedies in our life. You have helped me accept my children for who they are and for who they love and for where they're at and accept them unconditionally. And they love me and turn back unconditionally. That has come through my, my practice of this al program as you people have taught it to me. The mountains or the valleys, the, the, the stuff about uh, uh, a tragedy in my life uh, where my father-in-law got struck and killed by a car to an argument about corn on the cob. As long as I turn it over to my higher power, as long as I turn it over in my mind to see what Alan has taught me, I'm going to be okay. And I stand in my room this morning looking out the window at that green on the hill out across the freeway and it was just so beautiful and the wind was blowing. And I looked down, and there was this man-made swimming pool with a rope across it outside in the hotel room. And suddenly a drake and a hen, Mallard, came down and landed in the swimming pool. And we're swimming around. He says, God, you are one good dude, you know. <laughs> this is great. Uh, I, once again, I just thank you for showing me Al-Anon and Alcoholics Anonymous the way, the way Sandy and I have learned it. And I thank God for showing us this beautiful fellowship which has enabled us to live a happy and joyful life. Thank you very much.